Episode 30 of As the Actress Said to the Critic, with me, Nancy Carroll, the actress. And me, Sarah Crompton, the critic. Hooray! We got there. (laughs) Very good. Very, very good. And actually, this is a perfect episode to do because I thought we'd talk about uh, Shakespeare a little bit because I'm um, vaguely obsessed, as in quite a lot of people, I have to say, with the Jack Thorne play that's about to open at the National, The Motive and the Cue. And the reason people are obsessed with it is because it is about um, Richard Burton and Elizabeth Taylor and John Gielgud, who are all sort of such starry names, and specifically the time when um, Burton was playing Hamlet. Which was the date when... when 1964. Ah, okay, great. And famous story that um, Peter O'Toole and... Richard Burton were making um, Beckett together, the right. film, yeah. and uh, they tossed a coin. They d- decided to both play Hamlet and they tossed a coin to see who would be directed by Olivier and who would be directed by Gilgood, who were the two famous Hamlets of the <gasps> previous generation. So, no. So brilliant. They were, I suspect, slightly drunk at the time. Yes. And um, O'Toole got Olivier and did Olivier Hamlet um, directed by him at the Old Vic, and wow. Burton got Gilgood and went. To New Is that York? like an urban myth, or did that actually happen? I think it's such a strong urban myth that yeah. I think it must have happened. Okay. Though there is also sort of slightly counter to it that O'Toole was very much sort of seduced by Olivier. I mean, right. and and uh, who chatted him up and said, "You must do Hamlet. You must do Hamlet." Yeah. And um, he, uh, when he'd done it, he said and hated it. He hated doing. Oh it. really? Oh gosh. And he said that only a fool would play Hamlet, and that uh, it was all about vanity, and that he'd <gasps> been he had been talked into it. So so that's the counter to the myth, but it is a yeah, very yeah. very strong myth. Why did he say why he thought? Anybody will be a fool to play it. He just hated it, really, I think. And also, Olivier decided to do a very, very long version. Right. So he, it was, you know, like well over three and a half hours every night. Yeah, yeah. And I don't know, he just lost interest because Derek, Derek Jacobi tells that brilliant story that when he was playing Laertes in that production, that he never knew whether O'Toole was really going to kill him because he was sort of bored. And oh, so really? the fighting scenes were. <laughs> <laughs> Anyhow, that, so that's happening one side of the But Atlantic. that's really interesting, isn't it? Because it, it, there, you take on these roles because there's this great moment where you go, well, yeah, I'm about to play Hamlet for Olivier at the Old Vic. Or, you know, and everybody, all actors say the best moment of any job is getting the job and that it's downhill from then on. Yes. <laughs> Which is not not strictly true, and and there is more nuance to the experience than that. But there is a, there is a sort of glorious moment before the reality of actually having to develop the muscles to do it in any manner that looks convincing. And I think with all of those sort of titular roles, I always feel that titular is like a made up word. <laughs> yes. Is it the titular role? Uh, is it they're really hard going? Yeah, you on some level. Obviously not because the entire ensemble works, but you're driving something and the audience look to you for your, you know, to be able to experience the play through your eyes. So on some level, there is a weight of the experience that does, whether you like it or not, fall fall on your shoulders. But, you know, and, and also the psychological sort of dark corners of the experience just always creep up and surprise you. You know, parts like Leontes and Hamlet and 
you know, Macbeth and all that sort of stuff, you have to go to quite psychologically dark places, yeah. whatever the interpretation or the location of the production that you're doing, in order to sort of just develop the muscles. You don't necessarily have to stay there once the muscles are sort of warmed up. You can sort of go there, you know, eight show a week, not automatic pilot, but you once you've done it, you know what that feels like. But they're hard going. Yeah, you know, you yeah. have to sort of pull a Christmas tree through your soul a bit in order to sort of <laughs> understand what it is. And, and you know, and, and, and they, the stories about people being sl- driven a little bit potty yeah, by well, playing the parts are very, very real. Very, very real. And one of the things, as I understand it from talking to Jack Thorne in advance of the play, one of the things that he and Sam Mendes are interested in examining is the way in which, particularly playing Shakespeare yeah. and playing those titular roles, yeah. is that... Um, people then it you it's it sort of becomes your authorship. So yeah. people talk about Andrew Scott's Hamlet, David yeah, Tennant's yeah. Hamlet, Richard Burton's Hamlet, John Gilgood's Hamlet. So you you are you are becoming a participant in actually in the creation of the work, which yeah. which does put um, a kind of huge stress on you. Yeah, yeah. And I think you know people have walked away from it. You know, Daniel Day Lewis most famously never went back on stage after walking away from. Um, Richard Eyre's Hamlet. Yeah. Because something happened to him in that moment that he never wanted to explore again, you know, and I think that is so interesting. And equally, it's so interesting that over and over again, I mean, today they've announced that Ray Fiennes is going to do Macbeth yeah. with um, Simon Godwin directing an Indira Varma as um, Lady Macbeth. Yeah. And, you know, Macbeth, even more than Hamlet, yeah. is a play that doesn't exactly make or break reputations, but there are a lot of Macbeth that people kind of, again, O'Toole's famously is yeah, terrible, yeah. terrible Macbeth. And it really sort of is like a black mark of, yes. of, 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 of um, I don't want to say failure because it doesn't kind of feel like that, but it doesn't come off. You know, yeah. great actors have not pulled off these parts. Yeah. And yet over and over again, they keep on trying to do them and well, there's it, a sort of wealth of you know pools of different places because it's a testament to how great the writing is is that you can go down different avenues and and uh, you know any production will say you know oh well we're really going to investigate you know what it is to what it is to grieve for example with yeah. or what it what is incest what is you know what whichever way you go down and with macbeth so you really really push the fact that they, you know, have they had lots of miscarriages? Why have they got no children? What, you know, what is it do you do? Do you examine that? I mean, you can take it, you make choices about where you want to go, you know. And and as we've said before, in terms of, you know, when we were talking about uh, Titus Andronicus and how you how much blood you actually yeah. use. You know, it's and there's a lot of pressure to be, as you say, definitive. To, yeah. to to interpret for a new audience. And sometimes when you get there, you you think, I'm not sure I have anything new to offer. Or yeah. I remember years and years ago playing Viola oh, and wow, and yeah. um the RSC we did Twelfth Night. And I thought, well, I want her to be uh completely wild and you know and this is she drives everything and it's all going to be terribly exciting and then I had this one-on-one with uh, John Barton who was sort of very old but still very much alive and I went to his uh, very nice 
service department somewhere in central London, and he was drinking lots of Red Bulls, and and we had this sort of. Um, Rather Did intense Clinton conversation. And drinking Red Bulls. No, no, I, th- I think sometimes he had added things to the Red Bull, but uh, not while I was there. But he, um, he basically said, "Well, the thing with Viola is that she's reactionary." And I thought, "No, no, you've got it completely wrong, Mister Expert, who started the Royal Shakespeare Company. You're completely wrong, and I'm right uh, that she is wild and interesting and drives yeah. stuff." But by the end of the experience, I thought, "No, John Barton's completely right. right. Everything happens to her." And although these words are beautiful, how many different ways can you say, make me a willow cabin at your gate? You know, all these beautiful, beautiful speeches. I thought, I don't know how interesting I can be with this. I think in a way, I've sort of got to stand here and just say it and and let the words do what they need to do, which is probably, (laughs) I don't know what that means about me, but, you know, whether we're overly ambitious about interpreting something that has ultimately stood the test of time, yeah. but we are just passing through. Yeah, that is interesting, isn't it? I mean, um, so Finney said about Hamlet that Albert Finney said that you um, you have to take those parts on because it's a test of you as an actor. It's like yeah, it's like yeah. testing your metal. But if you look at that, it, it takes us back to the sort of gender casting of Shakespeare, because if you look at the absolute definitive female parts yeah nobody talks about nancy carroll's 12th night i mean if if you know know. viola is the key part is a wonderful female part in shakespeare is wonderfully written yeah but um like um uh rosalind is in as you like it or, or or but nobody talks about the plays through that prism through so at some levels the female parts are reactive parts apart from I guess Antony and Cleopatra where you have got a chance to sort of you do talk about Judy Dench's Cleopatra or Helen Mirren's Cleopatra but even then always in combination with the man you know maybe that's the difference between comedy and tragedy as well that tragedy has a you know a little bit more of a sort of fire pit at its base that you can go there but that um and maybe comedy, it's harder to do that. Although people do talk about Maggie Smith playing Rosalind they and do, Vanessa Redgrave, yeah. and um, and uh, you know certainly Pippa Nixon, most you know in the last decade at the uh, at the RSC in Stratford, you know was brilliant and definitive and and joyous to watch. And and Geraldine James, of course, is about to do it yes. uh, at which the RSC, really which should be really exciting. Yeah. Oh yeah, and Malcolm Sinclair playing Orlando. And, you know, the wealth of experience on that stage and, and just sort of opening up that that portal to say, actually, let's let's play around with the age brackets of all of these parts yeah. because the, the, your life experience and what you bring to those words, having had more experience than, say, you know, like Ian McKellen, you said, of course, yeah, playing, playing Hamlet. Yeah, playing Hamlet more recently. two goes. But suddenly, you know, the difference between life and death... And knowing what that is makes more sense in the yeah. sort of your autumn years than perhaps your spring yeah. years. And, and, and you know, the, there's something to be played with there that we need to investigate. Yeah. No, it is true. And the, it is definitely true that the, the kind of breadth of casting has opened up so yeah. much. And, you know, actually, again, going back to Hamlet, you know, a lot of actors have two goes at it. Um, Kenneth yeah. Brunner had 
three goes at it really? twice yeah, yeah. stage one some film McKellen did it early in his career and then late and and said he just felt he was acting in a different play and very much in that later version was talking about what you're talking about that sense of death which runs through the play yeah and he felt that he'd understood that kind of you know religious acceptance of death yeah um and Simon Russell Beale had this brilliant quote about Hamlet who was a very moving Hamlet I uh, remember, but he 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 said that you know it's a play that um, can take anything you throw at it. It's a play and a part that can take anything you throw at it. Oh, right, and I okay. suppose in a way that's true of all of Shakespeare. They are capacious. You can open them up. And now, of course, Nancy, you could play Hamlet or Lear or I mean, you know, yeah. And, and is the one that you would like to play if you were choosing a Shakespeare, a titular Shakespeare? A, a titular Shakespeare. <laughs> well, I don't know, one. it's really, I mean, I have a go at any of them because I think, you know, the, the most exciting experiences of everything that I've sort of rammed myself at so far have been the most unexpected ones. Right. And, and rarely are things as you assume that they will be anyway, because you can never account for the sociological experiment of, of a group of actors who do or don't know each other in a room together with that work and what it means to all of them individually and then what happens in the theatre and with the design. You know, all of that is always gloriously surprising. I think it's really, really interesting. I mean, I've had this conversation over the years. I think w women in Shakespeare are uh, generally, you know, if if they're playing something ha that is a traditionally female part, are less kamikaze about life and death. Right. They tend to be the life givers, you know, apart from Lady M. Yeah. You know, who really does push him to make decisions and then you see the fallout of what that does to her. And that's extraordinarily exciting that ultimately perhaps power tips her over into a, a bit of a dark vortex mm. that she can't really pull herself out of again. That, but that, and that that's an interesting conversation in itself. But I think polit politically, there's sort of the, you know, like um, Brutus now in the, the production is now being played by a woman at the RSC. And, you know, that, that it's being, it's happening more and more since uh, Phila Deloy's productions with Harry yeah, Walter. Which is and so brilliant. All of that. Yeah. I mean, once you start going down that road, it's really, really interesting. The romantic parts, if you were to have a female Cleopatra and a female Antony, that would be an interesting thing. You know, yeah. um, but I, interesting in what way? I mean, what is that play about ultimately are we there yet can we can we experiment with that with those identities and uh, you know i think everything opens up a, a conversation you know i watched uh, glenda jackson's lear oh, yeah. and i thought you know it it's it's really really interesting and i think if you make it about mothers and daughters as opposed to fathers and daughters uh it, it is it, it's more about power struggles uh, and and family, yeah. Um, as opposed to land and territory and greed, maybe there's something that can be brought out of it—a tenderness with with having a woman, and you know, bashing at the stage and bashing at the words. But ultimately, women 
working out, you know, where the boundaries are yeah. in their relationships, maybe. But what was, yeah, and it is, I mean, I do think one of the the best developments of my theatre going life, because I, as a, as a viewer, what I love about Shakespeare, it's a bit like going back to Swan Lake over and over again yeah. as, as a, a viewer of dance, is that what you do want is to see is exactly what Jack Thorne's talking about, which is the idea of authorship, of yeah. seeing what an actor, what a performer makes of a part and a director as well. Yeah. But, but you, you know, it, it is seeing that through the different prisms. And I do think one of the best, best developments of my lifetime is that it has become more... Um, accepted more normal that women just play the parts and that you just cast for an interesting idea that you've got and that you can therefore you know have a female Richard III you can have there's um, Alex Kingston is doing um, Prospero at the moment at the RSC you can you just do it and because you have an idea of what it is that you want to do with the play. Yeah. And what's fascinating, I did see um, Glenda Jackson do Leah twice, once in Deborah Warner's production in um, England and, and at the Old Vic. And yeah. then once again for, I think, Sam Gold in New York. Oh, amazing. And I kind of rocked up thinking, well, I'll see the same interpretation from Jackson you know I I hadn't really imagined but because he had a completely different view of the play yeah she gave a completely different performance yeah yeah and I and and I thought oh yeah that and that and then that becomes so interesting because you're seeing it, it is that sense of seeing Shakespeare through the prism of of people's performances and and people's acting and and their their life as you say life stage the history the period in their life they're doing it the period of production that they're they're doing yeah. as well and I think that for for an audience for a critic um, it, it is endlessly fascinating because then you really are bringing in everything you've seen before yeah yeah I think that also I mean interesting as well thinking about Hamlet in terms of monarchy you know yeah. that these are this is a family that you know, live in a palace who have been kept apart, who are going through something emotional and raw, but in a public setting. And you think about what the royal family are going through now and that, you know, we're about to have the coronation of King Charles III and all the rest of it. And there's a very interesting thing about the the voyeurism, social voyeurism on those families that are under the microscope constantly and then you see like the conversation between Gertrude and Hamlet in her bedroom in a completely different light and how desperate he is for her affection and then how jealous he is that that moment when he needed her most after the loss of his father she immediately attached herself to another man yeah and then where that takes him in his mind and how he can't relate to Ophelia, who, again, has been sort of thrown from pillar to post and, again, is surrounded by powerful men telling her what to do. And it, and and the difference between their childhood relationship and then the minute he's given more authority as a sort of older man and, you know, young prince or whatever yeah, he is, yeah. that, that he can't be innocent with her anymore. He can't give her what she needs and so that push pull of public and private yeah. i think is fascinating and it, and possibly you know in a in a modern setting 
could be investigated completely differently. Yeah. So well, that's that's interesting. It is interesting. And it's also fun because we were watching, because I was thinking about Hamlet and all the various interpretations yeah. of it for this production, because one of the absolutely fascinating things, of course, is that Gilgood, the reason that people are obsessed with this, this 1964 New York production is that Gilgood was the most famous Hamlet of his generation, having done it six times between the 20s and uh, 1950s, final performances right. in where Gilgood bracket he tells a brilliant story about somebody has an epileptic fit during his final speech and there's a brilliant Gilgood anecdote where he says I was really upset for the man but I couldn't help feeling that he had ruined my final performance but and then you've got Burton who is you know the young titan bestriding the world and having a completely different view so that that's the fact why people are fascinated and also of course it's how you do the speeches so we were watching as an example of how to do the speeches we were watching that brilliant brilliant thing where they did to be or not to be yeah uh, for the RSC's 50th anniversary gala and you get Benedict Cumberbatch, David Tennant, Harriet Walter, Judy Dench and everybody comes on and uh, McKellen yeah. they all come on and they do to be or not to be paparesiedu um they all do it in a different um meaning just by where they put the, the emphasis of the to be or not to be. They only do that line. And then the final one, bringing it back, is now King Charles, who comes on and he, as the patron of the RSC, does his version oh, of to be amazing. or not to be. Yeah, and yeah. so it has got that very, it's kind of odd that you would say that because it has got that sense of, a, a play that everybody knows and that yes. kind of binds everybody together with that speech. But it's interesting as well to have someone as famous as, as Richard Burton because there is that thing of seeing any beautiful, very, very well-known celebrity live on stage being completely vulnerable with those yeah. words and that sort of slightly morbid fascination with seeing people in the flesh. And, um, no, you know... Not obviously morbid because, oh. you know, like, but there is that thing of, oh, my gosh, they're actually there um, and they're actually saying these words. And it's just and you do have to rip yourself in half to do it. But I think sometimes the the sort of the accolade, the moment of revealing, oh, so and so is going to be playing such and such or so and so is going to be playing this or, oh, I'm going to be giving my Hamlet or I'm going to be doing that is so far from the actual reality of having to put yourself through it put every night through because it you do me. have to put yourself yeah. through it in order to bring it to life yeah. because he's he's wrestling with his the loss of his father but what his father represented that structure mm. and um when we did it years and years ago you were Ophelia I was Ophelia yeah. but, but we talked about the nature of you know, identity, your your formative identity. And when you when you are forming yourself as a young adult, that apparently, and I can't even remember where I read it, but that too much sort of smothering and oppression has the same almost psychological effect as no structure or um, input at all. Right. So people who were completely smothered by their family, parents, whatever, given, you know, so many rules that they couldn't breathe, have not been able to grow their own identity. And that equally people without boundaries and structure and are given absolute freedom 
again have struggled to grow their own identity and out of that comes a sort of mental health crisis that can lead to something else. So it was in the context of um, psychopathic behaviour. <laughs> but, but the thing that this, this analyst had drawn the conclusion was that they had one of two experiences yeah. and both at polar opposites of this, of this spectrum oh, of um, parental... But that is, I mean, that is just what you just love. I mean, I, I mean, I love the fact that the motive in the queue is about Hamlet because it is sort of just a kind of an all Shakespeare. It's just an urtext for understanding so much yeah, yeah. of life and whether he did. Because the other thing I've seen this um, week is is Hamlet, which is the Maggie oh. O'Farrell play written by. Lolita, oh, well, Lolita Chakrabarty yes, has adapted. Has adapted the Maggie O'Farrell novel. And um, yeah. Um, has adapted the Maggie O'Farrell novel. And, and that, of course, sort of tries to explain the mystery of this play. And she suggests that it was written in response to the death of his son. But it's that wonderful mystery that it's still speaking to us all Completely. these years later and that we can still sit here and have this, the 30th conversation yeah. on, as the actress said to the critic, about a play written in 1601. I know, but actually what's so interesting about, you know, you obviously hold that in parallel to where... You know, all his plays can be held up in the sort of timeline of what he was doing in his life and what he feels about love, what he feels about um, children and death and marriage and everything. And, you know, that's why I'm always amazed by how anybody could think that anybody wrote the plays other than William Shakespeare. But that's a whole other that's another episode. Episode 31. But the, but, the, <laughs> but the interesting thing about it, I uh, did, ran a workshop recently comparing Twelfth Night to um, Miss Amelite's Dream in terms of his view of marriage. Right. And you think about the joy in the lovers and the sort of bombastic way that they sort of banter back and forth and the way that the, you know, Oberon and Titania play with each other. You know, it. There, there is joy in that last scene where um, you know they all come together and they watch the mechanicals do their play, and there's a sort of resolution that you think about the darkness and the take on uh, relationships and the, the the hurt that Malvolio goes through and that Olivia feels in Twelfth Night. That they were, you hold that up against where he was in his relationship with Anne Hathaway. Yeah. You think, well, he was he was in that place. That's the, that man wrote those plays yeah. because of what his take on love and marriage and life. And of course, Hamlet, you know, he was reeling from the death of his son. Um, and and it, there's a there must have been some level of catharsis for him writing the play yeah. in the first place. Yeah, yeah. So anyhow, we will go off to yeah. see. We will go and see the Motive than Q and yes. report back and report back on very many other things. But for now, I think perhaps we should say, do subscribe if you like the podcast so that you know when it's coming up and that you will be able to catch um, other episodes. Yeah. And for now, we'll say um, goodbye from me, Sarah Crompton, the critic. And goodbye from me, Nancy Carroll, the actress. <laughs>